Welcome to the Sport in Your History podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. This week, we're continuing the series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the BSSH's Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series at the IHR with Dr Chris Stride of the University of Sheffield. Hi, Chris. Hi. Chris is a senior lecturer in statistics at the University of Sheffield, but in addition to his work as a statistician, he has a number of ongoing projects on the history of sport, including an anal analysis of cheating in sport and a major study of sporting statues. But when Chris came to the seminar in autumn 2018, the paper he gave was on the history of replica kits in soccer. Chris, I seem to remember that the paper combined your interest in nostalgia in sport with your professional expertise as a statistician. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me about the research you did to gather the data for yeah. the rise of the replica Yeah, I mean, um, if I was speaking to uh, pure statisticians, they wouldn't think the statistics I did in this paper were very complicated. There was a lot of data collection <laughs> and descriptive statistics, to be precise. Yeah, we collected data, when I say we, it's me and my co-author, Nick Catley, uh, we collected data on crowds, so it was looking actually looking at crowd photos and counting the number of replica kits in crowds, uh, and then we coded that up for each club for each season from 1970-78 through to 1996, if I remember rightly. Uh, and then we also looked at adverts for replica kits and manufacturers' catalogues as well. So we, we collected catalogues uh, and adverts from matchday programmes and magazines, and, we all, and then we coded up and counted the number of adverts, number of adverts that featured fans in, number of adverts that portrayed the kit as an item of leisure wear rather than something to be played in, and so on. Yeah, and... Um you sort of tra trace the rise of the replica kit from something produced for children back in the sort of 70s, I believe. Yes, yeah. Um, through to something that became acceptable for adults to wear, although yeah. some people would still say it's kind of unacceptable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah certainly one of the, uh, alongside the actually collecting objective data uh, on advertising and production and parading, that's what we called people yeah. wearing it, uh, to matches. Uh, we, we did a survey of fans as well and one of the comments from a Millwall fan was, I wouldn't ever go out dressed up looking like a Christmas tree. Uh, <laughs> another one said something along the lines of, um, therefore children to wear, no grown adult should go out dressed like this. Yeah. Uh, and in a, in a slightly more abrupt way, shall we say. Yeah, the, the idea of the project was to look and see if we could identify uh, when, why and how replica football shirts became an accepted item of adult clothing because that hasn't always been the case. I mean, if you look at a crowd photo in the 1960s, actually a lot of supporters are wearing a jacket and tie. Mm. A few might be wearing t-shirt or some sort of leisure wear, but nobody is wearing a replica football shirt. Um, um, and it's not that it was impossible to buy a football shirt then because people bought them to play in so yeah. you could have gone to a sports shop and bought a replica or a or bought a football shirt to play in it wouldn't have been seen as a replica it would have just been a red shirt or a white shirt you could have sewn a badge on and made it look like your team but no one ever did that and then wore it to a match so so this wasn't the thing that adults or even children did in the 19 uh, 50s or 60s um, and when does it start in the well, 70s well since the late 50s, there'd been an industry selling replica football kits, that's the shirts, shorts and socks, to children 
branded as looking like one of the major teams. And it starts in 1959, Umbro launched the Umbro set, but these are only child sizes. They're sold not on a wear it in the street type way, they're sold very much in dress like your hero, play like your hero way. And it is a very small scale cottage industry. One of the reasons for that is that in those days, um, kits were not copyrighted. So if you produced a red shirt, you could call it Man United, you could call it Liverpool. And equally, the kids at school could call it Man United or Liverpool. You didn't, you couldn't claim I have the exclusive Liverpool kit because there wasn't one as such. And clubs weren't um, commercially aware. In clubs weren't commercially aware. They, they weren't. I mean, in those days, clubs didn't really have club shops in the way they have them now at all. I mean, some clubs wouldn't have had any promotional um, outlet like that. Most might have had a supporters with trestle table, mm. maybe a little hatch somewhere in the ground. But Selling old programmes. Yeah, maybe things like that, but certainly not football merchandise. It was very undeveloped. Um, and anyway, these, these kits were for children. They were the child sizes. Um, the first real change comes in the early 70s when Bert Patrick, who ran Admiral, realised that he could perhaps make a bit more money if he could claim his kit was the exclusive one. So he partnered with Leeds United and he used the 1968 Copyright Act to copyright his design for the Leeds United kit. Um, he paid Leeds United £10,000 for this, right. the right to do this and then both he and Leeds could say this is the exclusive Leeds kit, buy it from Admiral and no other club could copy that design and suddenly you've given that kit an extra piece of authenticity it becomes the Leeds kit yeah. and that's both authenticity in terms of the product, it is the looks just like the one it's made by the same company as the team are wearing but it also gives the wearer of it a sense of authenticity. They are now a true Leeds fan because they have the true kit and that makes these things much more attractive to own but it's worth noting they're still only done in child sizes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These kits are still child size replicas and there's a big boom in them, really really popular but they don't really do them adult sizes. And actually that boom, making them popular for children, actually held back the development of the adult industry because they became seen almost like a child's toy. They're a child's thing. Yeah. And there simply isn't the demands or the thought that adults might wear them. That only really starts in a very small way in the late 70s. And the Trojan horse for that, not the right expression, but the, the, the way in for that happening was cup finals and big games and there'd been a tradition dating all the way back to the late 1800s that you dressed up for a cup final mm. and if you look at photos of cup finals dating back 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50 years you, will, you can see some fantastic costumes, huge top hats were a thing, a very big thing, huge rosettes, people in fancy dress basically and in the late 70s wearing a replica shirt became a sort of cup final fancy dress. It became a way of identifying yeah, yourself when you went down to London exactly, and yeah, identifying exactly. other fans. But because you could wear fancy dress at a cup final, dressing up in a replica shirt that was seen as a child's thing wasn't seen as silly yeah. just for that one-off big game. The other big game you might do it, the England-Scotland International, that was a big end-of-season football party stroke right. punch-up basically <laughs> yeah um, and that legitimized the wearing of those things in big games and basically it was basically adults squeezing into large youth sizes because they weren't really producing adult sizes in these days you were getting young adults in their 
their late teens, early 20s, squeezing into youth sizes of these replica kits. And there's a few photos of them, and you see a few scattered around in cup finals. And then gradually, in the early 80s, you start seeing more and more adults on the terraces at league fixtures on sunny days wearing replicas. Not, still not many, maybe 1-2% of the crowd, but you start seeing them away from cup finals. Uh, and I think that's partly the sort of the fact people have worn them at the cup final, they've kept it and they've put it on, a, on another sunny day. It's also the fact there's a bit of wardrobe inertia coming in. You've got the kids who started wearing these things in the mid-70s boom. Yeah. They might have been 13, 14 then. Suddenly now they're 1920 and they still quite like wearing that replica kit. People are starting to take longer to grow up in those days. The idea of adolescence, kidhood, yeah. more people going to university, marriage starts to happen a bit later in the 80s. Through to the, um, now, I mean, it's now into average age for marriage is in the 30s, isn't it? It's, yeah. um, but it, it's that, that process is starting then. And childhoods are longer and therefore people are hanging on to those child, childish ways of dressing longer and that becomes more acceptable. So you get that happening in the early 80s, but what you don't get then is a big takeoff of adult replica kits. If you look at a crowd from 1981 to 1985-86, looks broadly similar. You might get one or two replica kits scattered around, but you certainly don't have a whole sea of them. You don't have a big block of colour. Yeah. And the reason that that doesn't happen, two things I think. Firstly, the state of football at the time. Um, it wasn't particularly safe to wear a kit, a replica kit in those days. <laughs> I you wouldn't were just have worn a Darlington shirt in Hartlepool. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That's exactly the thing. And um, You're likely to get beaten up in an away game. You wouldn't be able to get into a pub to get a drink before the game. Um, they weren't thought of as cool. They're still thought of by a lot of people as a child's thing. It's not a widely accepted fashion. It's a niche. Um, and you become a target for not just away fans, but for the police as well. The mm. police are looking for people who might be trouble, football fan might be trouble. So you're just marking yourself out. Uh, football as a wider thing isn't fashionable. These are dark days of football. Football is a pariah sport. Uh, it's not something that people would wear in an aspirational way to identify as being a football fan because it wouldn't have been <laughs> a thing that would have been seen remotely as aspirational. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing is, as I mentioned earlier, Really, football still hasn't really embraced the merchandising age. Uh, if you go back, I mean, in, in the early 80s, clubs like Chelsea and Manchester City, they don't even have their own club shop. Right. They have a local sports retailer who claims to run a, an official club shop, which isn't really official, and he's paid the club a bit of money and he is their outlet. I think Arsenal, West Ham, well, Arsenal had a little hut, a little hatch in those days. Um, some clubs might have a small shop somewhere away from the ground, but it's not like now. No mega stores, nothing like that. It's really Spurs become the first club to really start taking that seriously in the mid 80s. Mm. But there's not the ease of purchase. It was quite hard to get hold of a replica shirt. Sizes weren't manufactured up to extra large or dark player. I mean, you, they'd started in the early 80s to start making adult size, a small adult and a medium adult size, really to cater for the larger youth. Yeah. But we're not talking about anything that your average middle-aged person would look comfortable in. So there's not availability, it's not fashionable, and that suppresses it. And it's only really late 80s where you start getting wearing replica shirts by adults being a slightly more widespread thing. I seem to um, remember that comes slightly out of the World Cup, doesn't it? Um, I remember kids wearing Argentina shirts after the must have been after the '78 World Cup, and when Spurs sign 
are dealers and yeah there's certainly children possibly doing that i i think world cups do provide a boost international tournaments i mean the the first england shirt that you could get any adult size in really was the 1982 one the admiral one um yeah. and tournaments like that do produce a boost but actually uh, i think the the takeoff in the late 80s um comes before the 1990 World Cup, which is often seen as one of the sort of great environments. But, yeah. but it, it, it's before then, and I think that one of the nice things about this project was that it shines a light on uh, a few myths. One of the myths being that football only revived by the 1990 World Cup or by um, the Premier League. Not true. Football was getting better. It was on the road to recovery after that mid-80s watershed, really. I think the watershed being the riots, Millwall... Highs or season afterwards, crowds were at a record low. But from then on, they start to recover, and it's fan activism that leads the way. And you get the development of fanzines, independent sports associations, and you also get a sense of fun coming back into the game. There's various reasons being put forward to that. Some people have talked about the drug choice of young adults um, (laughs) moving from alcohol and speed towards ecstasy. Uh, That may have had a slight thing, but there's certainly a sense that. Fans have decided they've had enough of the game being ruined by both hooligans and overzealous policing, and they're going to try and bring a bit of fun back. And you get you get supporter campaigns on serious issues, but you also get fans bringing inflatables to games, and a general sense that I, I think I guess in those days football was quite an un, it was quite an empty space. Um, you. If you went into a, anybody could get in the ground, grounds weren't going to be sold out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You could rock up with your mates yeah. and you could do pretty much anything. And in the past, that much anything had been having a fight. But as CCTV came in, policing got on top of that a bit. People started to be a bit more creative, having a bit more fun. Yeah. And Football becomes more carnivalesque yeah, again. It does. The carnivalesque, that's a perfect word. It, it, there is a sense of that carnivalesque starting to come in. And as part of that, fans become more free and start wearing their club colours. They're more free to wear their club colours because there's less chance of getting beaten up. Um, And being identified as a football fan then, um, rather than being something really odd, it becomes almost cool. You get the enemy coming and saying, football is cool again. Yeah. Um, These fanzines and and this writing and this new group of left-leaning young fans They've always been there, of course, but now they're trying to create a space for themselves. Um, they've made this game cool again, and this—you could almost look at the kind of the boom in the working class population at universities, couldn't you? Yes, you could um, do. As yes, being a significant. Um, I think there's a link through to the sort of rave culture. I said not just through the drug of choice, but also the clothing, football kits at that time start becoming a bit more lurid yeah. and brighter, and it fits in with a few of the fashion trends of the time. And this all culminates up to the 1990 World Cup, where football is getting more and more popular. I mean, this sense of footballing becoming more carnivalesque and more relaxed and a, a more enjoyable fan culture survives Hillsborough. Yeah. Um, and it carries through to that 1990 World Cup. And then you see England fans all going abroad, all dressed up in the replica shirt in Italy and fans in England start buying it. And the, the ultimate crossover, I think, in so many ways, both literal and metaphorical, is the, the New Order single for that World Cup. New Order, you've got a band who are a little bit indie, 
but have a mainstream sound. Yeah. And football is moving there from being this thing that had become almost a subculture. Uh, the coolness of football, at least, was a subculture thing now becoming mainstream. And on uh, top of the pops. Exactly, on top of the pops. And not and old guys in ties, but... Um, exactly. Yeah, Barney Exactly. Sumner. Yeah. yeah, you've got Barney Sumner um, and Gillian. Uh, can't remember her surname. <laughs> they're in the video, they're both wearing English shirts. Yeah. They're wearing the replica shirt. And you've got New Order, who are cool, wearing a replica shirt. I think Kate Moss's first appearance on the front of a fashion magazine, just before that 1990 World Cup, She's wearing replica football gear. Yeah. Um, and it all comes together. And at that point, actually, I would say, and until very recently, that was the point where the football short was the, cool, the coolest, yeah. that, around 1990 World Cup. But anyway, this is still something that's it's cool for young adults. Sales in kits, kits on the terraces, numbers have gone up. You start seeing blocks of colour on the terraces. But it is still young adults. This is cool for young adults. 40-year-olds don't normally buy into... Yeah. Um, <laughs> enemy supported subcultures and it takes the Premier League and the idea of real commodi hyper commodification of football to really push the replica shirt so it becomes all encompassing basically the, comp the manufacturers see in the early 90s that wow we're selling a lot of these replica shirts now we could actually um, do really well out of this so clubs start charging the manufacturers more money. I think the first million pound kit deal was Man United and Umbro. Um, yeah. Umbro paid a million for the rights. And Umbro think, oh, shit, we've really got to really sell these things. <laughs> we've got to sell a lot of these. Um, so then they start making bigger sizes, start looking, who else can we sell them to? We can't just sell them to cool 20-something fans. We've got to sell these to the dads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and to the mums as well. Well, you say that, that comes later. I mean, selling to the the mums and in any way crafting kits um, in women's sizes and shapes doesn't really happen until the mid two thousands. That's right. the forgotten area. Um, it's incredible when you think about it. Uh, the proportion of women attending games estimates in those times range somewhere between sort of. Um, fifteen percent down to about five six percent, and obviously that increases through the Premier League years. But that's still a substantial chunk anyway, and yet it's a market that was never really targeted. Yeah. Uh, however, they did target the older, fuller-figured man. I think it's fair to say. You look at the sizes when we looked at our data, and we looked at the sizes of kits in the catalogues. Um, the biggest size available went up from sort of large in 1987 <laughs> and extra large and then XX large and XXXXXXL. Um, so clearly they've got to sell more of these things now and you've now got the infrastructure to sell them as well. You've got club mega stores and you've also got, along with the club mega stores, you've got the development of national sports retail chains, JJB yeah. Sports, and that gets the shirts of the big clubs out there on the high street. Yeah, and that so makes you, a difference. You could say that this this phenomenon is is not um, just specific to football, is it? It's part of a, a development in the twentieth century whereby sub subcultures, which generate their own kind mm. of um, looks or fashions, 
become exploited by bigger Absolutely, commercial operations. Yes. Don't they? Yeah, I, I also I also see the parallels with the gentrification of an area as well. I think what happened to the replica shirt tells that story. I mean, for football, as if you think of football as an area or a landscape, uh, in the mid '80s, it is run down, derelict, and in a real mess. Yeah. And you have these early adopters moving into that area. That's your young left-leaning fans of the late 80s yeah. who reinvigorate the game among a small subculture of people, make it cool through fanzines, etc. And the, and the replica shirts are something that's vaguely popular among that group. Though, though not completely. I mean, some railed against commercialism of any sort. Yeah. But in those days, the replica shirt wasn't really that commercial. I mean, they, <laughs> not that many people wore them. Um, and then that makes football, that, that gentrifies the area to the extent that the yeah. people can come in and yeah. exploit it. So it's one other area that you look at where you might see the same phenomenon happening of the subculture of football becoming kind of commercialised mm. and the official stamp being put on it is this other project that you're involved with on the Sporting Statues project. Yeah. So how yeah. did that project come about? Were you looking at football first, or were yeah. you looking? Yeah. I mean, I mean, so probably it's 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 an ongoing thing. It's still going. Yeah. I mean, um, just yesterday there was I found three new ones in Hungary. Oh, it's right. amazing. <laughs> it, it's amazing. They just come, keep coming, keep coming. No, I. Um, it all started when a colleague of mine um, popped round to my office one day about almost ten years ago. Now that's what's so crazy about it. And he said, "Um, oh, you know these statues? I've seen a few at games." Um, do you know anything about them? I, I was interested in just um, writing a short article about them. Um, and I said, well, how many are there? And he goes, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And to a statistician, you say, how many are there? And yeah. some of us don't know. The first instinct is, well, I want to know how many there are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to write about it until I know how many there are out there. And I guess I see as a statistician with an interest in sports history the thing I can bring to it is a sense of context there are lots of brilliant articles on particular unusual examples yeah but you don't really know they're unusual unless you, you can present the context so you're, you're looking at a kind of a typology of statues are you well I, I want to know how many there are out there and yeah. that makes it possible and if you can look at the characteristics of the ones that are out there and the general characteristics the things they share if you call it a typologist yes um, then the ones that are really unusual, the ones that might say something different, can stand out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And without that evidence, you can't really claim that something is particularly unusual or important or significant uh, if you don't know what the everyday one. And sometimes, actually, the interest is in the everyday, the common trends, the the common typologies that there exist. So, yeah, I set out to sort of document them and actually we started off just looking at UK sport. Um, I say we, me and Fionn, who's done the project with me mm. for the last nine, ten years. We set out looking at UK sport, how many UK sport statues were there, just with the intention of doing a talk at a BSH conference. I mean, we didn't, I didn't really know anything about the world of sport history then right, at all. Okay. I'd never <laughs> been to a sport history conference, and, and but I, I knew BSSH existed. I was friends with Neil Carter at DMU through playing cricket. He, oh, right, yeah. So I, he was a way into this strange world I knew nothing <laughs> about, and he suggested give a talk at BSSH. So I thought, well, okay, I'll try and write a paper on sports statues. And very quickly came clear there's a whole load out there. Um, and I was interested in who they were. Was there some sort of regular type? Who got chosen initially was my big question. How do you get a statue? So. 
I ended up writing a paper trying to predict which people got statues, whether they're footballers or base, football, football and baseball players, which football players and which baseball players got statues. Was it career performance? Was it long serving? Was it national achievement? What was it that drove that? So that's sort of where I started out. And then after a while collecting them, it was just became so fascinating. It became clear there were so many different stories yeah. that these things could tell. And I wanted to have a definitive database to refer to, to write those papers. So um, we set out basically to create a public facing database. I mean, there was a lot of synergy there really. If you're gonna do a project, it's nice to get it out there, not just to other researchers, but to the general public, to the media. Yeah, I mean, because you've built up a database now, haven't you, online? Yes, so yes can we you have. Tell a, we, us a bit about that yeah, project. We have a, there's a public facing database um, at www.sportingstatues.com. Um, it's got hopefully complete databases for UK sports statues, world cricket statues, um, US baseball player statues, and also world football as well, as in soccer. Yeah. Um, the world soccer one. I'm probably lying if I tried to claim it was completely complete because it's very hard to find soccer statues in North Korea and remote parts of China online, and they are out there. Yeah. Um, so there's probably a few we've missed, but we'd hope it's sort of 99% complete. And on the database, you can look at a map, and that has all the statues marked on it. Click on them, and there's a page for each statue showing a pictures and pictures of it, who sculpted it, um, what the inscription says and links to the sculptor's websites and a little bit of extra information about it. So uh, that database, um, I mean, part of the reason of doing it was, I guess, in terms of writing papers, it gave us something to compare and reference. And I, I, I suppose the one thing where the project hasn't quite worked, so I, hoped, I hoped other researchers would want to use it, the database yeah, as well. Yeah. And there's only been a couple of instances of that, really, where people have drawn um, stuff from it. And, and if there's anyone out there, <laughs> please use that database. It's and really you want interesting, people honestly. to submit as well if they find something that's not yeah, on the Yeah, very much so, yes. Site. Now that has been quite good, I mean, because yeah. we, we set up a Twitter feed as well and we do get tweeted new statues. No, I did, and it's I quite did that myself, I think, like yeah. a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's the, that's great when people do that because we can't find them all the moment they're done. I, I, I do a search in Google using about 20 different languages yeah. Searching and then the name of the sport and the well, statue and unveiling, etc. And I do that every few months and then trawl through and hopefully pick up most of them. But yeah. any user contributions, there's anything you look at other database and you think, well, that one isn't on there, <laughs> then please let us know. It's really nice to have it. Have you found that there's been an acceleration of statue building since you began this project? You said you started around 10 years ago. I think the acceleration came a little bit before we started doing it. I think the real acceleration, certainly in the UK, comes in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a number of reasons for that. The, the national lottery funding is one of the things that kicks in because um, in terms of funding for civic sited statues, councils, when they're installing public art, now have to pay a bit more attention to what the public is perceived to want rather than what yeah. art critics might want. So really between the 1920s and the 1980s, 90s, you, statues were very rarely figurative statues. They tended to be strange abstract shapes. Yeah, or with holes in their stomachs. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, but once it's 
the public's money directly from the national lottery, I think there had to be a lot more questioning about what the public really want and the public like figurative. However, the, these days the public don't much like the traditional figurative subjects. They don't massively like politicians. <laughs> yeah. um, famous industrialists are less of a thing. Um, religious figures are generally less of a thing. The Queen, well, the public generally like it, but the royal family isn't held in quite the same sort of awe as it was. Military statues are quite controversial. Yeah. I mean, you do still get war memorials, but they're certainly not the carte blanche thing that they were. I mean, there's, there's controversies over them. Whereas sports people, and also comedians, weirdly, oh, are yeah. very yeah, popular statue subjects yeah. because the, the, they're new, these new celebrities, really, you can talk about the celebritization of British culture, and it's a good mark of that, really. You now, the statues we make tend to be of sports people. And, and they're fairly neutral. Um, yeah, especially when they're yeah. retired, I guess. Yeah, and I mean they touch on touches on some of the reasons that statues of sports people are erected. I mean, civic authorities, football clubs, when they put them up, it's often the same reason. They have a landscape that is quite bland. I mean, modern city centres look very plain. New football grounds are very boring. That's another phenomenon, normally. isn't it? The the the, yes. the sort of explosion of stadium building. Explosion of new stadiums. Yes. Yeah, exactly, and that kind of, that's another driver for it. And you, you've got these bland landscapes, and what councils and what clubs are looking to do is to use statues to add some authenticity, add some tradition, evoke nostalgia. These are all things that bind people to places, give them identity, give the place an identity. Uh, I think clubs are also, and um, civic authorities are also looking to bask in a bit of reflective glory. This is our Jackie Milburn, yeah. as they would say in Ashington. Or, or this is our, yeah, war Jackie Milburn, exactly. Uh, it's that sort of thing that's being used here. Um, there's been research shown that evoking nostalgia in fans binds them to the club. So that's an obvious driver for clubs to put these things up. Makes them spend money. It does, yeah. And it, 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 statues are what are known as multivalent things. They can have, take lots of different meanings from different people, and they're very useful. I mean, you stick a statue of a heroic player up outside a football club, then for the older fans who saw him play, it reminds them of their childhood. Mm. Amazing, these great days we shared with friends when we were kids on the terraces. Um, for really hardcore fans, if there's a particular motif in that statue, maybe a particular wristwatch the manager wore, or if it's a player, the way he kicked the ball, it gives them an opportunity to show off how hardcore they are. I remember that. Yeah. I yeah. remember that moment. Um, but equally, that statue appeals to newer fans um, or football tourists who will come to a stadium. I mean, think of Thierry Henry outside Arsenal. If you're coming from abroad, just to look around the Emirates, because it's a big stadium in London, you see Thierry Henry, oh, famous player, he played for Arsenal. Um, and that's good for the club. It, it's yeah. getting a link in. It's attracting these people. So it acts as a site of pilgrimage, doesn't yeah, it? For very much so. Yeah. Coming from a long way away. Yeah, and it's a photo. It's a photo op as well. A selfie. It's a, yeah. a static <laughs> selfie behind your photo. So there's so many different meanings and uses that they can take on. They don't cost that much, and they last for a long time. Yeah. Really, from the point of view of a club, what's not to like? And uh, just to round off uh, can you tell me about your favorite statue so oh okay I mean there, there's different favorite statues that. some there are some that um, are really interesting there are some that I really like because of the design 
Uh, I think the one that brings those together, it's actually not a single person, it's the team statue. Um, and it's at FC Chemie Leipzig, Leipzig in Germany. And I think everything about it's brilliant. Firstly, it's not outside the ground, it's alongside the pitch. Right, OK. Secondly, that is unusual. Uh, it's the, they're concrete figures, not shiny bronze figures. They're not cliché. They're sort of slightly... Um, Beryl Cook, yep. the, or the artist. Yeah, Imagine yeah. slightly sort of rotund figures, yeah. all painted in the kit. They're by a um, German um, sculptor. can't remember his name now, but he was a political he was a highly political animal, yeah. and he put he did these statues in the mid seventies. This is in East Germany, so he's he's a satirical artist, stroke sculptor, and he's trying to undermine the communist regime. Oh, okay. So he's done these sculptures of footballers. Of course, he can't be too blatant about it because he'll get locked up by the Stasi. Yeah. Uh, but this is a very clever little statue he's done here. He's got this, the team here, and it's the team of Chemie Leipzig, and it's the team from 1964 he's sculpted, and the team of. Chemie Leipzig in 1964 won the East German Championship. Um, now that in itself is not that remarkable, Leipzig was quite a big place, but what had happened the previous season was that the communist authorities had taken all of Chemie's best players right. and given them to Lokomotiv Leipzig or Dynamo Berlin yeah. um, because they were the clubs that the authorities supported. Yeah. They were the ones they wanted to win, yet Chemie still won the title. So you could see this as a real two fingers to the authorities and a statue of these players. That's fantastic. It's, fantastic. it's a really fascinating story. It is. It is. It's a great story. Um, and, yeah. yeah. If people want to see uh, that statue, then they can go along to the homepage, can't they? And I'll, they can. Yeah. And yep. I'll put a I'll put a yeah. link to that on uh, sportingstatues.com. Yeah. They can also go to our Twitter feed um, at Sporting Statues. I just retweeted yesterday a statue from a right wing perspective. Um, one of the many new Hungarian football statues who their ultra-right president seems to be encouraging around the country. He actually even unveiled it. Yeah. Um, so it can work the other way. Evoking nostalgia is a, a totem of um, far-right regimes as well. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yes, go to, the, go to the Twitter feed, go to the website, have a look. That would be fantastic. Uh, great. Well, thanks for chatting today, Chris. It's no problem. It's been really, really um, fascinating, actually. Um, in a slight turn to the incestuous in the podcast, I'll, yeah. I'll be talking uh, myself with Raf shortly um, about my own research. Um, but if you want to uh, come along to the seminar program or to the seminar which, uh, in which Chris's paper featured, our new seminar series will be starting very soon on October the 7th of this year. And Raf will be talking about um, governance in women's sports in the 1990s. So do come along to the IHR. All of the details for that seminar will be on our seminar homepage. And also you can find that at the IHR's website, which is history.ac.uk. Um, but for this episode, that's, uh, that's all from both of us. So it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Chris. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>